1: now, over the, the short period of time that I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've come to realize that there are a couple of things that you, you draw minimal attraction towards when you speak about them. Um, they're normally the higher power or God as we may recognize him in our lives. Um, definitely money. And thirdly, service. So I'm encouraged to see the turnout here this morning and I thank you for being present. Um, you know, Again, since coming into the fellowship, I've I've had to learn some some lessons. Very often, I've taken on a service position, and I think of, of positions back in my group, um, treasurer, secretary, and and back in those early days, they were actually ego strokes for me. Um, I had a a measure of importance suddenly within this fellowship, and and I've come to learn the longer that I stick around here that service is, is definitely, not, definitely not designed to stroke me up or to make me feel better about myself. It's actually gratitude in action. You know, I've sat in many meetings over the years and I've heard these expressions of gratitude. And then I've, I've walked outside after the meeting to hear the very same person complaining or contradicting something that was said or done in the meeting. And my sponsors, when I was guilty of doing this, said to me, what did you do to change it? If the meeting was a bad meeting, what did you do to change it? And I, I've had to think about that. And and as I've grown along this, this path of, of recovery in, in the fellowship, I've looked at different servants, different service providers to me, GSRs, district leaders, sometimes even the trustees. And and I, I've been critical of the, of the decisions and things that they've made on my behalf, man. And I've had to remind myself, what did I do to change it? When my delegate called for a meeting and asked for my input, did I attend? Did I open my mouth and express my opinion? Or did I just sit back and let it all happen? And then reserve the right to criticize the decisions that were made on my behalf later? This gratitude to me is serving my higher power. Uh, I get on my knees on a regular basis and I thank him for the sobriety that I've found. And and he asks me to do something. He doesn't want my money. He doesn't need a house. He doesn't need a car. He doesn't need me to take anyone off the street. All he asks me to do is serve my fellow alcoholic. And if I do it, I believe with that in mind then I will find the blessings that I so crave. Um, The the reading that I'm going to share with you is from Alcoholics Anonymous Comers of Age. It's on page 279. And Fanny dearly wants to speak on this subject, I know. Society, in referring to the alcoholic, employs the expression, the enslavement of alcohol. For the AA member, this statement is in a very special sense, paradoxical too. If indeed it is true at all. In sober fact, <clears throat> the member was never enslaved by alcohol. Alcohol simply served an escape as an escape from personal enslavement to the false ideals of a materialistic society. Yet, if we accept society society's definition of the alcoholic's earlier state as enslavement by alcohol, the AA member can no longer resent it, for it has served to set him free from all the materialistic traps with which the paths through the jungle of our society are set. For the alcoholic first had to face materialism as a disease of society before he could be free himself of the illness of alcoholism and be free of the social ills that made him an alcoholic, or her, I would presume. Now, having said all of that, how is it that I go about getting into service? And, and how is it that I conduct myself once I'm in service? You know, very often newcomers come into the fellowship and they hear of of the board of trustees and, and GSO and this this foreign place far away in another province, a couple of thousand kilometers away from us and 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 i've often heard it referred to as our head office <laughs> and I, and i've got news for you the he, the head office is yourself each individual member the deeper we become involved in service the more of of your servant we become and it's on that note that i'm going to introduce this <laughs> this miserable panel that i'm looking after today our first speaker will be the switch lady Helga, she's our trustee of literature and publications. So you're welcome to criticize her at the end of this meeting as much as you like. (laughs) Secondly will be Frank, Frank G. Frank's uh, also um, trustee of IT and finances. Then we're doubly blessed with another Frank. Um, It's not a stutter. His name is Frank. Frank V., he's a trustee serving in the East Rand at, at Central. And then, funny, is, is our past trustees just stepped down out of service, and they will speak in this order. So thank you very much for being here.
0: <laughs>
2: Good morning. I'm, El- I'm an alcoholic. That's fine. So I couldn't resist one. She finally always makes me do things. Yeah, right. It's always his fault. Right. Um, thanks, everybody, for making this meeting. And, you know, I, I learned in AA over the years that whatever I don't want to do is the very thing I must do. You know, and then when you stand up here, you think, why am I doing this? What am I doing this for? I don't know what I'm doing. And, and, and never have I done anything for AA that I've regretted. You know, whether it was collecting somebody from Hillbrow or, I don't know, giving them a meal, I've never ever regretted it. You know, so I don't really understand the controversy with, with service and, and, uh, you know, it's kind of what we do. Well, it's kind of what I do and, and I think we should all do it. And, um, you know, of course I'm not comfortable and I wasn't comfortable when I came to AA in the first place. You know, when I came here, I was just going to pop in. You're going to teach me how to drink three gr- drinks and go home. And I was going to leave. I wasn't going to stay because I was uncomfortable. The first time I stood up and shared, I think it was my one year and I just cried the whole way through. I didn't say a word and I sat down and everybody clapped and that was the end of my share. So, you know, and that's slightly got better over the years. And just as I was getting comfortable explaining you my log, they asked me to talk on service. So, so I'm going to give it a bit of a and. And, yeah, it is a little bit controversial, and I'm okay with that, you know. Um, it, it does it does always, you know, bother me why people aren't queuing up to do, I call it outside of the group service, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to stick to outside of the group service, because I think we all know the guy who cleans the, the ashtrays and the guys who put the chairs out. we all know about that part, you know. But service outside the, of the group is a little bit more, we don't talk too much about it because we're so busy being humble, that we uh, don't tell anybody about it, so nobody wants to do it, and we don't understand why. And uh, so, so I think that's where they're kind of making us talk now to lots of people. I thought there was going to be a little room in the back where we talked about service, not to the whole convention, but anyway. So, you know, kind of like what qualifies me to do any kind of service? And it's not really, and I, and I heard you talk about egos, and you know, I hear you, you know, I mean, I, maybe I missed that part, because, you know, all the service positions that I ever did I'm sorry, I was the only person standing. You know, when they said, do you want to come and be the GSR of this group because I was the only person opening up and closing up the meeting, I went, "Uh, uh, uh, okay, you know, so I don't know, I opened up and closed the meeting, I don't know. And then before I knew it, I was sitting at the area office and I kind of heard about CPCPR and I thought that was quite fun and nobody else kind of wanted to do it, so I said, "Uh, uh, okay, you know. And then when my friend said, let's go, my friend Frank G. said, come, let's work on GSO together, I went, uh, uh, okay. And I kind of just did it. You know, when they said they need a trustee for literature, I went, uh, uh, okay. You know, so I don't think it's a great achievement. I mean, I do understand achievements in life. I mean, I've tried to run the Ironman. That was pretty hard. Climbing Kilimanjaro was pretty hard. Uh, getting an engineering degree was was pretty hard. And those are kind of achievements with the greatest respect to everybody, <laughs> being a trustee is not some huge achievement. It's just a job. It's not a position to me. It's a job. It's a job, you know, and what is my intention? My intention is to have this ship continue to sail. That's the, that's my job. You know, we, we must keep the ship going. I don't have kids, but I'm sure a lot of you do have kids. And, and, and one day this ship must sail. So when they need to come on board, the ship is going, you know, and it needs a bit of a captain and it needs a, Person to run the engine, and it and it needs to sail. So, so that's that's the kind of plan. So, it's not a great, you know, I haven't got a great, a great mission in life, but it, it it needs to go, you know. And and AA gave me everything. I mean, I came in a couple of years ago, 13 plus years ago, and uh, you know, I didn't want to be here, and I, my life was a big fat mess, and I didn't understand who I was, and I didn't know what my meaning was, and I didn't know my purpose. And I slowly, very slowly but surely, I kind of started understanding who I was and where, and I fitted, you know. I, I mean, I did fit. Okay, we, we, we fight with each other, and that's okay. We like to argue, we like to have debates. But I kind of fitted. And, and often I hear people saying, I'm not a committee person, you know. And I, and I don't know really what that means because life is one big committee. It talks, we have to get on with each other. I mean, we don't have to agree. But here we get to practice. You know, here we can have a little debate and have a little argument, and then we're not going to get fired, or we're not going like, to lose our jobs, or our family's not going to disown us. We get to practice here, and, and a committee whether you whether you've been part of I don't know anything. If you if you're a salesman like I am, you sit at a sales meeting. It's a committee. You know, if you you joined a running club, it's a committee. And of course, I understand the concept. You know, the, a, a newcomer a couple of weeks ago, when I was given this topic, I asked her what's her take on it. And she told me it's, it's you people and us. And I didn't, and it took me a while to kind of get this us and you people thing, you know, because maybe I'm not too sharp. But, but I thought, you know, what does that mean? And, and then my friends, you know, when he joined a running club, and I remember doing the same thing, you know, if you hadn't run the comrades, it was those people. You know, and this country's got an us and them problem at the moment. I mean, it's a worldwide thing. It's not an AA thing. There's always a you people and us, you know, and there's no such thing here. You know, we're all a team and we're all on the ship together and we kind of all want to go down that road. And for me, like I said, when I got into service, it was just somebody said kind of, this is something that somebody needs to do. How about you doing it? And I went, okay. I mean, that was it. That's what qualified me. And I, and I must be honest, when, when the, the trusty position came for the, for the literature, it was quite funny because the very thing you can't do, you must do in AA. I am as dyslexic as all hell. I, cannot, I can barely read. I've just read the big book a few times. Anything else, I'm sorry to tell you and admit I've not read because the English is so hectic. I have, I'm clueless what it's even saying. Never mind this, this comes of age. I've tried to read that one. Have you ever read this thing? Oh, my God, it's impossible. So whatever you're bad at. I would suggest you do it. you know, because I also, my sponsor, said, whatever your brain thinks you should do, do the complete opposite. So if your brain says, do not be part of the system, run away, guess what? I think you should stay, and I think you should put your hand up, and it's quite nice, and I also didn't want to, and, and I didn't want to be part of committees, and I didn't want to debate, because just as you're getting understanding how the system works, there's something called rotation, and off you go. And you got to do something else. And just as you start getting to understand how it's working, you do something else. And that's really good. And and, and I like that part of AA. And I like, I understand it. And it's, you know, there was a lady came to me a couple of weeks ago, and she said she wants to do her thesis. to the psychologist. And she wants to do her thesis on voluntary work in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, what, what, what the hell is that? You know, what's voluntary work And Sat to me and had a nice pizza. And I thought, oh, you mean service. Voluntary work. So I was like, "Well, I suppose we all do it." She she couldn't understand. Why do you help each other? Went around and around. The merry-go-round. And she's obviously not an alcoholic. I explained service. Well, I thought I explained service. And a week later, she said to me, "But so why do you volunteer?" And I was like, "I just thought didn't I kind of I kind of got it, you know?" And she didn't really get it. And it just proves to you, if you're not in AA, you'll you'll never get this concept. And you know. When we do step 12, we always talk about the service part. And it's part of our, I don't know if we get a choice. I mean, I, know I think we, we indulge ourselves and think we can choose to be part of the system or not. I'm not, I'm not so sure. I don't think you get a choice. I think once you're in A and you serve it up your, for the first couple of weeks or however long it takes you, it's no longer about you. It's about getting the ship to keep selling. Yeah? And we've got to sell sell it uh, sell it, and we've got to keep it going. And I find it quite interesting that it's the third corner of our triangle And we all go. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I. I mean, you said that when you came into AA. You said you couldn't do AA. You couldn't sober up. You couldn't be part of this. You couldn't. You couldn't run a good life. You couldn't clean up your street. Who wants to do step nine? I don't think anybody was rushing out there, running, and trying to make amends. So it's the very thing that we don't like doing. I think that 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 we should do. You know, and 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 I am a little bit sad that I'm the only person putting my hand up. Because I think we should be. You know, I went to uh, last year. I went to the the LA group and the Pacific group in, in 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 LA. And I don't know if you know, you've all, all heard about it. There's a guy called Clancy, and there's a thousand people. And every Wednesday night, there's a thousand people in the synagogue, and there's a queue. And you've got to put your list, your name down on a list. There's a six-year waiting list to do like a, like a little baby service position where you pour the coffee and you tell somebody, "Please don't walk on the carpet." I mean, there's a there's a queue of people trying to do it because. You know they've—they kind of get it. It's—it's it's part of our—it's part of our—the our, recipe for sobriety. It's not as if you—I don't know—you don't get to choose. It's the triangle. It's—it's it's the third corner. Without that corner, and for me, I'm lucky to say—and this is me—and I don't talk about from I don't know if I could just go to a meeting, and go home. I'm not so sure. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can self-indulge and just sit there, get a message, and go out there. I come for other reasons. I come for sponsees. I come to see who's new. I come to see how the group's doing. And I've always got some kind of plan, you know. And the plan is either that the group must grow, or there's something wrong, or something must change, or somebody must debate. And that's what keeps me going to meetings, you know. I mean, I don't know if I can go to meetings and just go to listen and then go home. Yeah, you know, I'm not so sure if I can do that. So I think getting sober, yes, you've got to do the recovery. Of course, we must all keep together. But to stay sober, I mean, I really think we need to do service. So hopefully, just in a little way, and I've always got a mission, so I'm an engineer and there's always a purpose to everything. And, and I hope if there is something that I can achieve today, is that please don't run away from this kind of service, service outside the group. It's, I mean, none of us really know what we're doing. We're all making it up as we go along. You don't have to be qualified. You just kind of go along and try and get on with your mate next door. And we, and we hopefully we debate a very passionate topic. I mean, this is what I'm alive because of this place. So, it must be important it must be important enough to drag yourself out of bed on a sunday morning and go to an area meeting or a thursday night and slip across town and go and listen and talk listen to somebody else's topic that you may or may not be interested in but it's it's kind of what we do you know and it's kind of what i do and i thank god i'm here and thank god you've allowed me to do that kind of service cuz i wouldn't be here today thanks very much
0: Good morning. My name is Frank, and I am an alcoholic. And it's great to be here, and it's great to see so many friends. And I, I love coming to convention. It's the people I meet, and I, I guess it's one of the, the benefits of being, of being part of the service structure. I get to meet so many people here, and I love Cape Town. I, it's just great. I, it's a great place to visit. Unfortunately, my work doesn't allow that I could live here. It, uh, I don't know if I could move my business down here. And, I, and also, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'd be allowed to live in Cape Town because I, I, really don't want to own a rescue dog. And I, um, so I'll stay up in Gauteng where we don't have to do that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll earn my living there and visit you guys down here occasionally. I am a trustee. For um, I, s- I serve on the board of Alcoholics Anonymous in South Africa. I'm trustee for finance and literature. How incredible is that? I, you know, I, I look at everybody here at this table is a trustee, uh, with the exception of Fonny, who's just gone out, ro- rotated out of service. So you've got Fonny, you've got Frank, you've got Helgen, you've got Petty, and you've got me. And to quote Groucho Marx, you really want to be part of an organization with trustees like that? But I am... Um, It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I, for me, it's just so special to be there. And I'd like to explain a little bit, talk a little bit about from whence I come to, uh, you know, about my drinking. I I come from a very conservative background. I was brought up in what was then Rhodesia, you know, very English, um, sort of more, more British than the British, very, very conservative background. No, the folks were very stiff up lip. The old man drank an awful lot, but we never spoke about it. We never spoke about alcoholism, and it was all, you know, you wouldn't talk about that sort of thing. I've, they never taught me about sex. I mean, that was just foreboding subject. You don't hear that. So I had to learn about sex as a 13-year-old from the experts who were the 15-year-old guys at the time, and that wasn't as accurate as I would hope. But it was, um, and also, sorry, but you know, uh, scope magazine, I heard somebody mention it the other day. I learned about scope from, I learned about sex from the scope magazine, yeah. I like to tell people that I was very disappointed on my wedding night to discover that my wife didn't have stars on her nipples. <laughs> but I, um, I grew up there, and when I think about my alcoholism, when I think back, I often think that my, my drinking only sort of progressed to alcoholism later. And that for a long time, I drank fairly normally. I always drank too much, but I drank fairly normally. But in sobriety, when you start to think about your history of drinking, you start, I start to realize that my alcoholism affected me from way, way back. Because I thought, always thought that alcoholism was only about drinking, about drinking to excess or drinking, you know, a bottle of gin a day or whatever it was that I drank and however I behaved and I begin to realize the reasons that I drink and you know, I I'm not convinced that I was addicted to alcohol I and I'm not sure about that I I seemed to be able to stop when I wanted to stop it, it 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 wasn't that much of an effort my problem wasn't the alcohol my problem was sobriety didn't like sobriety it was a terrible place to be i just couldn't handle sobriety i and i would You know, I I wouldn't drink and then everything would get on top of me and this would be bad and I, you know, the wife would become a bitch and the kids would become blood-sucking loin fruit and everybody at at work is taking advantage of my good nature and I just, generally everything, it's like a spring that winds up and you start to feel that this is just, God, I'm just going to have a couple of drinks and take the edge off and I'll go home and I'll have a couple of drinks and immediately I get that ease of sense, and that sort of ease and comfort that comes from those first couple of drinks. And I felt good. And I just changed. And things were all right. The wife wasn't so bad. The kids were great. Work was all right. And I worry about rent next week. And alcohol just changed my perception on life. It helped me to see life in a totally different way. It just made it that much better. Which sounds good in itself, except for a couple of little problems. One was that I could never just have those two drinks for the sense of ease and comfort. The other one and that was perhaps the most important one, was that perception that alcohol gave me when I drank was a false perception. It wasn't true. It gave me a false perception of life. I made decisions, though, based on that false perception. And when I made those decisions, those decisions, because they were made on something that were false, were always a disaster. And my life became totally unmanageable. I came into the rooms when I was 47 years old, and I thought it has only been in the last sort of seven years that, I'd, that alcohol had affected me. When I was in the army, I, I joined, I, I had, like most of us in their days, I, I was I did national service, left national service, I was offered a job on a mine with Rio Tinto, and I went to work with, with Rio Tinto. And um, I was doing a mining course there, and they offered me... Um, I seemed to do pretty well there, and they, they they said they would send me to university. They offered me a bursary and the whole bit. A couple of weeks later, at that little town where the mine was, my army, my ex-army unit had come to town. They'd been given the freedom of the city, and they had come there for a parade and a bit of a party, and I went to join my ex-buddies. And we are sitting around and at two o'clock in the morning I was sitting there with the army, my, the, the commander, and he was talking about how the army needed me and how it was important that I get back. And I had so enjoyed being back with that comrade. I'd so enjoyed that I, would, I was, I could hardly talk at the time. But I, I volunteered to sign on as a regular member of that army, and I signed on again for another three years. That perception that I had when I was drinking, that this is what I was missing, I was missing this part of my life. I needed to be part of that, that fellowship, that, that comradeship that the army offered. So I gave up that offer of a university degree. Alcohol. It gave me a false perception, and I followed that false perception. And that's what I seemed to do all my life. And ever since I can remember, everybody else seemed to be able to connect the dots, you know, and I never could. I just, I just took whatever dot came next, and my life just meandered on. And most of the time I followed those dots because it was the easiest, simple, closest dot to follow. My dots didn't have numbers until I drank. When I drank, they had numbers, and I knew exactly which way to go, but it was always the wrong numbers, and I always seemed to get lost. Right towards the end of my drinking, when I, I remember, you know, the drinking has taken hold, right? And I'm drinking every day, and I'm waking up, and, and I'm, I've got that fear, and I'm terrified of everything. Work's going to hell. The wife wants to leave me and everything. It's and not a good place to be. And I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I sit bolt upright with that anxiety attack, you know, that absolute... That fear, that panic, and I sit up and, and I think, God, what am I going to do? And I know that I, I'm not going to get back to sleep. And I go through and I open a bottle of scotch and I start having a couple of drinks, but a couple of good shots because I need to get back to sleep. Good is not the quality, in a sense, the quantity. And I have this and I start to think, and I think, well, look, I'll tell you what I'll do I'll sell a property. If I sell that, I'll have money. If I have money, everything will be all right. I won't need to drink like I do. And that perception that alcohol gives me is this is a solution. So the next day, I'm thinking, God, I found a solution. So I sell a property. A couple of years later, I'm broke, and I sold the other property, which is the home that I'm living in. And I sell that. By the time I sober up, I've got no property. I'm in, in a terrible place. Financially, I'm bust. I'm broke. My wife and family are about to leave me. I'm about to lose my job. And I've lost complete touch with God. And this is where alcohol took me because it kept giving me a false perception of life. There was a story I heard shortly after I came in, and I many of you have heard it before, but I'd like to just share it again because it was very important to me. And it talks about this drunk who's walking down the road and he bumps into God and saying God's carrying this package. And the drunk looks at him and he says to God, "Well, what's that? What's in the package?" And God said, "Well, this." He says, "This. This is sobriety." And the drunk says, "Well," he says that's quite interesting. He says, "Well, because he's a drunk," he says, "Well, how much does it cost?" And God says, "Well," and I suppose because he's Jewish, he says, "How much have you got?" And the and the guy looks in his pocket and he says, "Well, I've got two hundred bucks." And the guy God says, "Well, it's going to cost you two hundred bucks." I says 200 bucks, but well, that's all I've got in my pocket. About. <laughs> I can't give you the 200 bucks. If I give you the 200 bucks, I can't put petrol in my car. God says, oh, you've got a car, says God. And I says, that's very interesting. I'll take that as well. My car? I can't give you my car. If I give you my car, how am I going to get to work? Ooh, you've got work, says God. Well, chuck that in the pot. So, Work? <laughs> If I if I can work, how am I going to how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to house them? How am I going to pay the bond? How am I going to you know what am I going to do with friends, etc.? I, I have no place to bring them. I need that to pay the bond. God says, "So you've got a house and you've got a family." He says, "Well, that's fairly interesting." He says, "Well, give that and I'll give you this package." So the guy says, "Hold on a second. You want my money? You want my car? You want my job?" You want my home, you want my friends, you want my family, all just for that little package. And God says, that's right. He says, but here's the thing, says God. He says, if you don't take this package, you're going to lose all that stuff anyway. It's going to go. All of that is going to go. And you're never going to get it back. If you give it to me, I'll make you a deal. I'll lend it back to you. You can borrow it. You can keep it. You can, it won't be yours. It'll be mine, but you can borrow it. So when you spend your money, you spend it wisely because it's no longer your money, it's God's money. And when you drive your car, you drive it like it's God's money and you obey the laws of the land. You don't speed, you don't curse at the taxi drivers particularly and you just drive as if it was God's car. And you work as if you're working for God. You don't steal time, you don't short pay your boss, you don't take the stationery, you work an honest day's work. And you live in this house like it's God's house. And mainly you treat your friends and your family as if they were gods. And you do that and you can keep this package and you will have sobriety. Hell of a deal. Hell of a deal. I decided to take that deal. And the thing was for me, the amazing thing was that I didn't stick to my side of the deal completely. I've tried. I honestly do try. I try to work this program. I try to stick to my side of the deal and treat people as I'm supposed to and do it. But as the the first chapter says, you know, when we read the chapter five and it says we are not saints, I used to think that was a bit of a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. It's a statement of fact. I'm not a saint. I'm a drunk, for heaven's sake. I'm a drunk trying to be the best person that I can. And that's the best I can hope for. So I don't stick to that deal, but God has stuck to His deal. God has stuck to His deal. I have money in my pocket. I have a car. I have a home. It's a <laughs> it tells me that God has a sense of humor. I now live in a place called Buxton Town, so I know God has got a sense of humor. But it's a beautiful home. We're happy there. I have a relationship with my children like I've never happened have before. I now have a grandchild in this year, which is just fantastic. And I'm invited to see my grandchild. I have a relationship with my wife that is fantastic. This lady who was going to leave me. I have friends like at this table here. I have friends like there are in this room. I have a life that is way beyond my wildest dreams. Way beyond. It's fantastic. I'm so blessed. Given to me by you for free. Nothing. All I had to do was do what you told me. You gave it to me for free. Why wouldn't I give back? If I've been given this, I I just... I feel like I have to reciprocate. I have to do something for this. I have to be able to give back. And I've been allowed to be of service. You, this people in this room, you might know it, but you've put me in the position that I am now. You've given me the opportunity. You've allowed me to be back of service. I could never do sufficient service in AA to give back what has been so freely given to me. But you've given me a chance to try. And I appreciate that. And I cannot understand why more people do not get involved in service, as as Helga was talking. I, and I know we all do what we can, but for me there's just no other option. Barry spoke earlier about the enslavement of alcohol. I don't want to be slightly free from the enslavement of alcohol. I don't want that enslavement to be bearable. I want it gone. I want to be free. And if I want to be totally free of this thing, and if I want to have that absolute freedom that is promised to me in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I need to do the work in there. And they speak in there all the time of doing service. Just coming to a meeting is not enough. Just speaking to other people, speaking to people within the fellowship, one it's vital for me, it's not enough. I need to do more. To get freedom, to be free from this thing. I need to do service, and you have given me the opportunity to do that. I have that freedom. I have a life that I wouldn't swap for anything, and I'm speaking at the convention in Cape Town. So thank you very much for listening to me.
3: Hi, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm an alcoholic. And I come from the Rosebank Group in Johannesburg. I'd like to really thank more than anything all of you for being here today. Thank you so, so much. It's been a wonderful convention for me so far. I've enjoyed it. I've heard many speakers talking about various things. And somewhere along the line, I heard, and and, uh, and from what was said, and I believe it's true, um, Alcoholics Anonymous is a little bit like the mafia. You leave us, you die. The topic for today and uh, is serving with humility. And, um, you know, I look back in my life, and um, recently we've heard a lot. We've got a good story to tell. The people that have got a good story to tell are the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've got a good story to tell. And I'm going to tell you a story this morning. And the story goes, once upon a time, you know, like in the days of old when there were kings and queens... And there were subjects and princes, and the king got all of his subjects, and he called them and he said, I'm going to build a road to my palace, and whoever travels the road the best is going to get a bag of gold. And on the particular day, all of the subjects of the king got together, and some went by horseback, others put on their finest clothing. Others ran, others took picnic baskets, and as they came to the king, he said, how did you enjoy the journey? How did you enjoy the road? And one by one, they said, your majesty, it was a wonderful road. The only problem, at the end of the road, there were some rocks in the middle of the road, and we had to walk around to get to the palace. And this went on and on right throughout the day. And finally, a guy came, and he had a bag of gold in his hand. And he said to the king, your majesty, I found this gold. They were in a group of rocks that were in the middle of the road, and I was moving them to the side to make the journey easier for those yet to come. And the the king said, my man, the gold is yours. For the person who travels the journey the best is the person who makes the road easier for those yet to come. And that's exactly what serving with humility is all about. But tell me, the causes of alcoholism, as per the big book, selfishness, self-centeredness, driven by hundred forms of fear. How can a selfish, self-centered person, driven by hundreds forms of fear, be of service to anybody? And that's why we need to do a program to recover from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, so that we too can serve. And I go back and I look in my life and my selfishness and my self-centeredness and my fear started long before I picked up my first drink. It started as a child of about six, seven years old because of the fact that we grew up poor in a relatively wealthy suburb and everybody had a lovely home and they had tiled roofs and double garages and toilets on the inside and we had the one old shack with pumpkins holding the roof up There were no ceilings. Every time it rained, we took buckets around. We had a lavatory on the outside. My father didn't have a car. And because of that, I felt inadequate. And how do you defend inadequacy? You defend it with a lie. And I became somebody I was not supposed to be. And I walked away from God and self-took over. Then, at the age of 13, I discovered alcohol. And it had the most amazing effect. To this day, I not only remember what the alcohol did for me, the name of it I remember, I remember the price of it. And you know what had happened? My brother and three of his friends had written their matric exams, and they were waiting for the results, and they were celebrating. I don't know why they celebrated, they all failed. <laughs> but they gave me some of this alcohol, And there used to be this little girl who walked past and she had this long blonde hair and these blue, blue eyes. And oh my God, I just wanted to... I I don't know what I wanted to do. And and I could never, ever go and speak with her because I had all of these feelings of inadequacy. And on the day they gave me this alcohol, I was waiting for her to come past. And suddenly... I discovered the answer to life. So I started using the alcohol more and more and more. In those days, we used to go to what was known as the sessions. I could never, ever go to the sessions because what happens if I have to dance? You just give me alcohol, I teach the people new steps. And so I used it more and more and more. Initially, I drank some of the time, then I drank most of the time, then I drank all of the time. But you know, if I look back, Right throughout my life, I must be honest, I've been lazy. I was just utterly lazy. I wanted to get good marks at school, but I didn't really want to work. Then I got married. I wanted to have a wife, but I definitely didn't want to be a husband. And then I had children, and I wanted children, but I definitely didn't want to be a father. And I, a woman, my first my wasn't my first girlfriend, but the lady, my first wife, I've had numerous wives, okay? My first wife fell pregnant, and at the age of 16, she fell pregnant, and we did what we thought was the right thing, but oh my God, it was the wrong thing, especially for her. And by the time she was 19, this woman had three children and a husband who never came home. And that's so, so sad. But she didn't need Alan because she said, I don't need this shit. And she walked away from it. And I realized I had got a bad wife. So I thought the solution is to get another wife. And then I got lucky. Some chick picked me up in a pub. I used to play a lot of sport and we used to go around together and we used to drink together and it was wonderful. And she eventually asked me, would I marry her? And I thought, oh, this would be so, so wonderful. And uh, as soon as we got married, she actually expected me to come home. That wasn't my idea of marriage. The second wife was the one that always overreacted. She was, you know, a counter. You get the woman that count. They say things like, that's your sixth drink already. And you want to say, for God's sake, shut up and finish your breakfast. <laughs> she was the woman. I oh bless her soul. Valerie was her name. She used to put anti-booze in my tea, and I used to put sleeping tablets in her coffee. (laughs) We had a wonderful marriage. (laughs) But she, too, decided to walk away because she, too, was a healthy woman. And, you know, things got worse and worse and worse with me. And eventually, in 1988, I was sent to her by a magistrate to wedge gardens under 33 seat to protect me against me. And it was at Wedge Gardens that they had my first alcoholic fits. And they were very severe. And uh, so they rushed me through to the J.G. Stratenham Hospital. And when the nurse and the doctor weren't there, I just marked them absent. And I went straight back to the pub. And the whole drinking game started all over again. And, you know, things just got worse and worse and worse. And by the time I'd got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd already had three wives, and I had had 36 jobs. And in my 36th job, I was fired by the government. Now, to be fired by the government is not easier. Eh? <laughs> I promise you. And I was getting people passports and IDs, and I matriculated with distinctions in maths and science. On top of that as well, I was a gifted sportsman, and I was offered a contract to play professional cricket in, in Surrey in 1966. But all of this was thrown aside for that stuff, that stuff that gave me courage, that stuff that gave me confidence, imagination, intelligence, that stuff that did for me what I could not do for myself. I could right throughout my life, until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I couldn't be who I was supposed to be. I always need to be somebody different. I'd go to the pub and people would say, what do you do for a living? And I was working in the Department of home affairs and tell them, no, I'm a school teacher." Then I drink a little bit more, and I promote myself to headmaster. Then I go a little bit more, and I become a gynecologist. <laughs> and then some chick walks into the pub, and I drink her pretty, and now I'm a lady's hairdresser. But I just couldn't ever be me. And the time came when I was found alcoholic synonymous. And I want to go back to a last week of my drinking with the fear and the terror and I would live for Fridays because, you know, Fridays are lovely. You can get lovely and frott, and on Saturday morning you don't have to work. And I would wake up, and I would have this fear in my stomach on a Saturday and think, oh, my God, I've caused trouble. And I'd go up to the pub, and I'd have one or two bottles of courage and confidence, and I'd say to Donkey the barman, Donkey did I call shit jail last night? He'd look at me and say, no, Mr. Frank, you weren't jail last night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, alcohol is a wonderful, wonderful thing it was. It took us places, places we don't know where we went to. And then I'd get on and I'd start my drinking. And I'd drink the whole of the Saturday. And on the Sunday, I'd wake up with the fear in the bottom of my stomach. And as the day progressed, the fear would get worse and worse. And I'd say to myself, today I'm going to take it slow. Today I will only have 12 beers maximum. And that's all I would drink, 12 beers maximum. And at 6 o'clock, I would go home, and I was living with my father, who was 88 years old. And I'd eat the only food I ate all week, two boiled eggs and two pieces of toast, and I couldn't finish it. And I knew I was dying, and I was frightened, and I was scared. And I would have the only bath I had all week, and I'd jump in and I'd jump out, because I was frightened I was going to drown. And then I'd take the tablets the psychiatrist gave me, tablets for anxiety, tablets for depression, tablets for my heart, tablets to sleep. And because it was a Sunday night and I needed a good night's rest, I'd take a double dose. And somewhere, somewhere about 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up shivering and shaking and frightened and scared and sweating, and I'd bargain with God The God that I didn't believe in, if they could only get me through this, I would never ever drink again. And the next morning, that mind that was bargaining with God thought it a good idea just to have one, just to have one to take off the edge. I don't know if you've ever heard the story about the boy who wakes up in the morning and says to his mother, I don't want to go to school today. And his mother says, give me three good reasons why you don't want to go to school. And the boy says, I don't like school School's boring, and none of the children like me. And his mother said, right, I'm going to give you three good reasons why you must go to school. One, it's your sense of duty. Two, you're 43 years old. And three, you're the headmaster. <laughs> now, I'm telling you that story because I was at that stage 43 years old and was bargaining with my father, who was 88 years Please to phone my work and tell them that I wouldn't be in. He never ever did it. And he used to say things like, you build character by doing the things you don't want to do. And today I realized just how right and correct he was. You know, there were various attempts at my life. Obviously they didn't come right. And I'm so grateful because I realized today that if I took my life, that I would have killed the wrong person. I also realized that suicide is a permanent solution for a temporary problem. And here I am standing alive and well and in love with the people of Fellowship, with the Fellowship and in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. The greatest gift I've ever been given is to be part of this wonderful Fellowship. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I went to my first meeting and a man was standing there speaking like I'm speaking now. And he said some wonderful things. He said, it's not the eighth or the ninth drink, it's the first. If you don't have the first, you're not going to have the eighth or the ninth. And I thought, God, these people are so clever. Why didn't I think about that? And then they told me that I wasn't a bad person, I was a sick person. And I was selfish and I was self-centered and I was driven by fear. And on the way home, I never had a car, I drank myself into low-bottom drunk. I lived in the broom cupboard of the Hyde Park Hotel at the end of my sobriety. I got a lift, and I said to the person, please drop me off at the Hyde Park Hotel. And I went into the pub there, and I said to the people, you know what's the matter with me? I'm an alcoholic. They looked at me in amazement. They said, we could have told you that 20 years ago. (laughs) But for 20 years, I looked for a reason not to be an alcoholic. Today I understand that an alcoholic is someone who thinks there's nothing the matter with him But what's really the matter with him is that he thinks there's nothing the matter with him. So what we've got to do is tell you what's the matter with you is that you don't think there's anything the matter with you. That's a matter of fact. (laughs) And, you know, I came into the fellowship, and, oh, God, now we talk about ego. And I was sober, and I got a sponsor, and he was such a wonderful man. And Patsy, I see Patsy over there, and a lot of people remember my sponsor, Arthur, and he told it straight down the line. And Arthur said so many things to him. And I became excited about the big book and doing this program. And Arthur taught me that this program is about finding a power greater than yourself. And in finding that power, you will then be able to live and serve your fellow man. And that's all that this program is about. Nothing more. I'm not ashamed to talk about God. This is a God-help program. It's not a self-help program. I've done the program, I've enlisted the aid of the power greater than the self. Today the most important thing in my life is God as I understand him. You know, when I was growing up, I was terrified of God because my mother always said that God would strike me down dead, stone dead. And you know how dead stone dead is? And you know, every time there was a thunderstorm, I'd get under the bed, put my fingers in my ears and say, please God, don't kill me. And on top of it, I was apparently going to go blind as well, my brother told me. And so I was terrified of God. You know, what I didn't know is that God comes to Alcoholics Anonymous. And best of all, he's here again today. And even better, God is sitting in your chair. May God bless you and keep you always. Thank you.
4: My name is Fani, I'm an alcoholic. I see on the program there's Professor Wim Rustenberg. <laughs> they got the name wrong only, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so these are the people that I served with on the board. And um, I was under no false perceptions of, of being a board member. I knew I wasn't going to be popular. But I was thinking about them, and I thought if they give me any crap, you know, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And then I discovered the dyslexic one, and <laughs> then the, the nice sober one, you know, the, the big Frank. And then the cheap sober one, like me. <laughs> and we are just alcoholics in recovery. Long before I ever got to serve at this level, I was in AA. I... um. I was a newcomer in A for about four years. I stayed a newcomer. I sobered up later. Um, I knew all my rights. I came in with all my alcoholism. And it took four years to leave the alcohol. So when the alcohol stopped, I had all the alcoholism in place. And it had to take years of years of being in AA for that. To go. The ego, which some of you think hasn't gone, but you just didn't know me before. <laughs> ego and all those things. I listened to, F- to Frank, that story about, both stories were excellent. And yeah, I sit thinking I know all these things. I didn't hear those stories before. And it's not pleasant, you know, when you hear things you thought you knew. So, we remain like students in the fellowship, and which is a good thing. There are times that I wasn't a student anymore. You know, we don't have egos. Now, there were many times I thought I was only here to help the rest of that were sick ones. And I used to share at people. But I was allowed to stay in this fellowship. And then I get, sometime in my life I come to serve but I didn't understand service, and the speaker spoke about service. It's our purpose. It takes us a while to come to realize that our primary purpose is to serve. There's a piece in the big book that describes it. It says, we are we busy putting our lives in order? This is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and our fellows about us. But somewhere along the line, a long time ago, there was a guy like me and he wanted to make a point, And he was, I suppose, he aimed it at people-pleasing. And he said, this is a selfish program. And that one saying has remained, and it's no surprise it remained, because we are selfish by nature. And that's an attractive saying. I remember when I heard it when I was new. That saying gave me hope, because I knew I was selfish. The selfish program, (laughs) I knew I can do it. But in service, in this fellowship, I have realized that that one saying has caused more problems in this fellowship than most other things. I'm not here for myself, my career, my little family and all that. I've been given a gift and it is my responsibility to pass it on. I don't have that every day. I have to be careful. I'm from Cape Town. Some of you know me well. But that's when I'm on the beam. That's who I am. And when I serve, it means I'm useful. And when I'm useful and I discover I'm useful, I get a sense of worth. Now for years I didn't have worth. I used to get worth from ego things like the second Frank. I also played sport, I also had gifts, I had a photographic memory, so I didn't have to study, I was just one of those smart Alex, and I could do anything I put my mind to. You know that thing that we all have? I had potential. And then this gift came along, but it looked like a curse. You know, I lost everything, made a fool of myself. My insecurities grew. And then I came to AA. I needed some money from my mother. She said, if you go to an AA meeting, I'll help you out. So I went, and I came back for the money. She said, no, you must go to a few. And I didn't like AA's. I spoke about you guys before I landed up here. I said they're a bunch of losers who meet once a week in some back room to lick one another's wounds. (laughs) That was when alcohol was still working, you know. (laughs) And then I came and I remember my first meeting was someone's third birthday. And his wife was up there. My wife was just about leaving me and I was thinking of single life <laughs> and it was a good meeting and I was surprised, pleasantly surprised at the people and I left there feeling that the AAs are doing good, good work for themselves, <laughs> it was nothing to do with me. <clears throat> In that four years I learned a lot about myself because I kept going to meetings, <coughs> heard things And I didn't identify, I argued with him. But in my life things happened and I'd remember I heard about this in AA. And it started dawning on me that I might have a problem. Because I didn't know that drinking was my problem because, as other Frank said, it was my solution. It gave me that sense of ease and calm. I was still short. But when I drank, I felt tall. Now I was now abstinent, short again, insecure, irritable, restless, and I joined AA. And I'm not a shy guy. I was a restless, irritable, and rude in AA for a long time. I worked on people's nerves. I studied the big book so I could share at people. Thank God I studied the book. Because you know, when you chuck mud against the wall, is bound to stick. But it was a long process. And the process still goes on, but I have learned. I don't think we can be part of this fellowship without learning. If we really do the work. So our purpose is to serve. But in order to serve effectively... There's a lot of work we have to do. I didn't like service. I didn't like people with portfolios. It's just the way I was. Uh, I didn't like most people. And when I heard someone was a delegate, he was a target. You know? I's going to try and catch him out, and who does he think he is? And that was my attitude. So now I was elected as delegate. I had some sanity to expect the same kind of treatment from people like me, and I met them, and I got it, and it was okay. I became a trustee, and that was the same. It was fine. It's like walking around with a dartboard on your back, but you don't mind. You know people are going to have a go at you, because I know what I'm doing it for. This is the fellowship that saved my life. And the only way I can pay back is to take what the old-timers had to take from me. And then I got to rock bottom of service in our structure. Chairman of the board. What a joke, I mean. Where else are you going to get a chairman of the board like this? I was broke, unemployed, board member of AA, (laughs) and the chairman. They were very smart, but just by the time I got chairman of the board, they had cut that service down to only a year. I think it used to be four years before. (laughs) It's not like I didn't notice it, but it's okay. (laughs) And so I've rotated out, because that's the wisdom of AA. You can't stay in any position. And I am free to do the cream of 12-step work now. I can go and speak to our colleagues one-on-one who need help. The board, the structure, and our service is to make that wonderful thing possible. And if we're in it for the right reason, it doesn't matter whether you suspect us criticize us, it won't matter. But if my motive for service isn't true, I'm going to end up resentful and I might spread the disease instead of the message. And I'd be better off for AI if I relapse. And I mean that. Because service was made unattractive to me as a member. I was sick and tired of getting long-faced people in service complaining about there's so much work and so few of us. They didn't look happy. I listened to this panel. It wasn't the same message. I served as a trustee in one of the most peaceful times of AA. This is our good God is. Now I'm waiting for them to fail because I can say I left it in good hands. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I belong in the fellowship. Because of my defects, I am most welcome. We are not here because of our virtues. We are here because of our defects and our common striving to overcome them. I won't let my wallet lay around even in this meeting. Sorry. This is an amazing fellowship, but you need to see it the way we see it, to see how amazing it is. If we look at it from worldly values, it's not going to be amazing. I was standing outside there when the other meeting came out. You know, my friends, they're all sarcastic, you know. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just looking here, thinking to myself, but for the grace of God, there goes I. <laughs> And I can do that. I'm not afraid of criticism. I am my own critic. I take my own inventory. Please, don't make the mistake of showing me you don't like me. I will piss on your party every time I see you, (laughs) so that you can get into your program. And this is what service with humility is. Humility simply means I must be with the hell I am. Not that old bullshit humility, it's false humility. That makes me want to puke. And there's a lot of that around. Oh, I'm 40 years sober, but I don't know how it works. Go and read bloody chapter 5. You know, it shows how it works. Do you know false humility? I know false humility, and so do you. We have all been phonies. It's about becoming authentic, being genuine, and doing the thing. And if we do it wrong, it's fine. If we have real friends in AA, they will correct us. And if we don't listen, we'll make fools of ourselves. And then amends in recovery is not as easy as amends for when I was drunk. There is no excuse. You know? I was under the influence and drunk and all. No, I was sober 20 years and I did this. A men's in recovery is not easy. But in order to get some peace, we're going to have to make it. And this is our life. So I'm sure this was a very pleasant surprise. I've now shared at a few conventions in a row. <laughs> My name wasn't on the... If my name was on that program, this hall wouldn't have been this full. But thanks for listening to me.
1: Right, you've heard it. You know, when we come into this program, we embark on a on a journey, and it's a journey made up of various phases of of learning opportunities. And if we read the big book. Under the promises, it tells us that if we're painstaking about this phase, and that to me is each and every phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. And I look here, and and I look with amazement. We're alcoholics, each one of us. And we trust each other to do a job on behalf of us. And, And that is how the fellowship works. You know, the transformation is perhaps not always so good. I came in here some 30 years ago for the first time, and I was young, handsome, tough, and ruthless. And you look at me now. I'm everything but, and rough and toothless. I'd like to thank this panel for, for sharing here today, and to each one of you for being with us and, and hopefully gaining some, some insights and some experience. So thanks to each one of you. A round of applause with a gift.